0: When you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Oh my God. I'm recording this on Friday morning at 1.43 a.m. We are three days out. Little less than three days from the debut of Don't Waste Your Pretty. And it's like starting to hit me like, holy shit, D, you got a whole film. Feels very, very, very surreal. And there's so much going on behind the scenes that it's hard to just breathe, sleep. That's not something I know much about lately. I've just been in go mode for so long that I haven't really had a chance to take it all in. But it's like starting to hit me like my friends are sending me videos from all over the country um, saying they're listening to the radio and they heard drops for Don't Waste Your Pretty or watching ESPN. My dad said he was watching ESPN and an ad for Don't Waste Your Pretty came on. And he was like, did I hit the remote? Like, it's on ESPN? Another friend was in a taxi. He was like, D, it wasn't even a long taxi ride. And I heard the commercial twice. God, but it's just so surreal. Like, I remember writing it. I wrote it at my kitchen table, which was... Um, A gift of sorts. Grandfather had passed away right when I moved into that apartment. And my mom gave me some of it. And she said, you know, get something nice for yourself, something you need that your grandfather would want you to have. And she called me when I was standing and bed, bath, and beyond to tell me that he passed away because literally I just moved into this apartment. But my place before, the place I lived in for 15 years, I had a kitchen counter, so I didn't have a kitchen table in my new place. I spent a lot of time um, in Detroit hanging out with my grandparents and either my grandmother's bedroom, which had the good TV, or in the kitchen. When I was with my grandparents, I, I spent most of my time in those two spaces. And so hanging out with my grandfather, um... Just at the kitchen table, like eating peanuts and watermelon and fried chicken and, you know, watching the news, like his favorite program of all time. That and anything with black people, colored people, he called them colored still, colored people on TV um, were very good memories. So I was like, I think my grandfather would want me to have a place to, you know, eat at. But my kitchen table turned into a de facto desk. I wrote and rewrote, don't waste your pretty while sitting at that desk. I don't have many regrets in life. One that I do have, I left most of my furniture because I left New York very abruptly. I didn't take that table or the chairs with me. Hmm. But yeah, like it just seems very surreal. I got this amazing video from uh, my friend Sabrina in Houston. I've known Sabrina since, Jesus, 2002, 2003? But Sabrina sent me this amazing video. She heard a Don't Waste Your Pretty drop on the radio and just like completely freaked out and was like, oh, my God, that's my friend. That's my friend. So the word is getting out. I'm very excited about that. Bebby, Bebby Smith, who was on the podcast a couple weeks ago. She did a great unboxing video, which let a lot of other people know about the film. One of my favorite snacks, he sent me a video congratulating me on the new film and encouraging people to watch it. And I was like, look. Promo for this film, all hands on deck. Like everybody, everybody's pitching in to make sure that this is a success. So I hope that it is received as well as it's being promoted. Put a lot of work into this book and this brand and this film in the last, what, eight years now? It's amazing just to know where it started at my kitchen table. And it's taken me so many places over the years not even I think. I've been on Good Morning America nine times, and every time it's because of Don't Waste Your Pretty. They bring me in as an expert to talk about dating and relationships. This book has paid my bills at various intervals, either from initial sales or speaking engagements purchased to turn into a film. Um, it's been an amazing, amazing ride, and I don't really think about it because it's my life. I just you know live it. But it's just, I don't know, starting to hit me like the last couple days, and I'm like, Wow, this is actually kind of awesome. I hope that you tune in to TV One on Sunday, 8, 7 central. People keep asking me what I'm going to do to like celebrate the film. And I was like, I'm going to sleep. Like the work is done. I've done the work. I'll celebrate it another time. But people like, oh, you're going to have a watch party? You're going to have a party party? Nope. I'm going to clean up my apartment. I'm not really drinking right now just because I have so much going on. I may have a glass of champagne, but that's about it. Like, I'm not planning to to do anything or dress up or anything like that. I just really, really tired. I want to go to bed. (laughs) So that's the plan. But please tune in. Please tune in. It's been a very good week for some people. Shout out to Ruth Carter, who was on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I swear, this woman is a testament to just keep living. I didn't know her name before Black Panther. But when she started getting so much attention and so much acclaim and they started running the resume, I was like, oh my God, I've probably seen every movie that Ruth Carter has ever worked on. I mean, like even dating back to school days. I was like, who knew? I mean, I suppose she did and people in the industry did. But I wasn't in the industry, so I didn't know but I'm super super happy for her. This is much deserved and perhaps much overdue to be quite honest. Um but I'm glad that she's getting her shine now. She also has a great exhibit right now. I think it's just the costumes for Black Panther, but don't quote me on that. But she has a great exhibit going on right now at the Scott Fashion Museum in Atlanta. It's like I totally totally want to see it. Hopefully I'll get a chance to get to Atlanta before it's before the exhibition is gone, I would love to just fly down there, but I kind of feel like gallivanting during a pandemic, unvaccinated at that, might not be the best idea. The other times I've been in Atlanta recently were, well, shooting Don't Waste Your Pretty and then shooting the Pantene ad. And the last time I was there, like, I totally pigged out. I keep thinking about the food at Poor Calvin's. Me and a couple of my friends went and we just got, like, everything on the whole damn menu Plus the lychee martini. Like, I wasn't driving, so, like, I kind of got fucked up. That is some of the best food I have ever had in my life. It was, like, the chef's special salmon and the egg rolls and the mac and cheese. Like, I felt like I was going to throw up when I left. And I was like, oh, my God, do I have an eating disorder? Like, what the fuck? so good. I would give anything for poor Calvin's right now. If anyone is headed to L.A. from Atlanta, (laughs) I will pay you to pick up poor Calvin's for me. Bring me poor Calvins. I love that place. Bobby Schmurter is having a good week. He's fresh out of prison after a six and a half year bid. Is it weird that I'm like uber excited about Bobby Schmurter getting out of prison? I was so happy. I did not realize it had been that long. If you asked me when Bobby Schmurter got locked up, I would have said like three, maybe four years ago. Tops. You never could have convinced me that he's been locked up since 2014. That song feels like yesterday. I still think of him every time somebody says about a week ago. And I also didn't realize how young he was. Like I knew he was young, but he's 26 now after being locked up for six years. I was like, oh my God, he was a baby when he went to jail. GQ caught up with him on his first day out and they did an extensive interview. He, I mean, he looks like himself, but he looks like himself, like plus 50 pounds of muscle. Like he's huge, totally swole. And I was like, oh, the little skinny kid that, like, threw his hat up in the air. We were all like, what happened to the hat, bruh? Um, like, man size now. I was like, holy shit. They also mentioned he had a brace on his hand, some, like, bandaging of some sort. And the GQ writer asked, like, you know, what's that about? And he was like, you know what it's about. I was in jail. So, you know, he alludes to mistreatment or fighting or something, but... Thank God he's out. Some interesting revelations in this GQ article. Bobby talks about how he had a lot of time to think while he was in prison. And he decided when he would get out, he would take music seriously. He would take his life and his career seriously. And so the writer asked him and he was like, you know, you didn't take it seriously. Like before you went in and he was like, nah, he was like, I didn't want to shoot that video. He was like, they had to bribe me to shoot it. I made them buy me an outfit. And I was like, are you serious? And he was like, well, you know, if you didn't take it seriously, like, what were you in it for? And he was like, money and bitches, which is a very 19-year-old male response. But he says he's going to take it seriously now. And he also talks about this conversation he had with um with Meek Mill. He said he was in prison and he was doing all right. He had been to, um, not necessarily jail, but he'd been in juvenile detention Before he got locked up on the charges that he went to jail for. And so he was like, you know, I was familiar with jail. It wasn't, you know, the end of life or whatever. You know, you make it, you know, jail is jail. You make it what it is. But he said he got this letter from like a six-year-old girl who said he was her favorite rapper. And he was like, I read the letter and he was like, I just felt shame, really. Like, I'm somebody's favorite rapper and... I'm locked up in prison. Like someone looks up to me as a role model and I'm locked up. So he said he wanted to do better. So I hope that he does. I really enjoyed his music. So I hope he makes dope shit this time around too. Tiger Woods, unfortunately, is not having a good week. I mean, depending on how you look at it. He was in a horrific car accident earlier this week, but he will live. I was very triggered By the CNN coverage of that accident, they kept showing the mangled car. Like, I'm shocked that he survived that accident. But it totally gave me Kobe vibes. I was just rethinking that feeling that I had um, when I first heard about Kobe Bryant's helicopter. And then, you know, all the speculation of who was on board. And then the final confirmation that he was with his daughter. And, you know, just how terrible that whole thing was. I don't think Tiger Woods is... As nearly as beloved as Kobe Bryant was. I think he's respected as an athlete. But I think he's had a few too many scandals. Not just like a one and done. But nobody wants Tiger Woods to die. He's weird with all that cobbling Asian shit. But nobody wants anything bad to happen to him. Not like death. Like trip and fall maybe. But like not death. Jesus. But he's going to he's going to live. That's the important part. He had um, several surgeries on the day of the accident. Um, I read they put um, all sorts of rods. I think his ankle was shattered or something. His femur, there's a rod. They were doing some other stuff. So the first thing I thought, and I was like, you know, is this like a Teddy P situation? Is is he going to be able to walk again? Hopefully so. CNN was so weird. I guess Tiger Woods had done an interview recently, and he was talking about competing in... Whatever the next big golf tournament was. And CNN was like, there's speculation about whether he'll be able to compete. And I was like, whether he'll be able to compete? I was like, the man has a rod in his femur. He ain't walking no time soon. He ain't ain't playing golf. I know that much. Did you see that car? I still haven't watched that Tiger Woods documentary. Like, I've been so swamped for so long. Oh, my God. But I do want to watch it. It's a two-part documentary. It's been compared to the Michael Jordan documentary critics gave it good reviews but what made me really want to watch it was a bunch of my friends saw it and the overall conclusion was kind of like yeah tiger never stood a chance he was gonna be fucked up from get-go but i never got to the answer of like why i imagine it has something to do with his father and the reviews that i read a couple of them compared his father to joe jackson which is never a compliment i really got to find time to watch that i really do want to, to see that documentary. Now, I'm not the biggest Tiger Woods fan, but I'm just interested in, like, what makes people tick. And also, like, that drive that people have to, like, become the best at what they do. I'm interested in that. In other TV news, my favorite shows are back. Last episode, we talked about how I was anticipating snowfall. And we had Amin Joseph, who plays Unk, Uncle Jerome. We had him on the episode to tell us what to expect for season four. I did get a chance to watch the season premiere of Snowfall. They had two episodes and Snowfall is one of my favorite shows. So I I was packing Don't Waste Your Pretty Boxes, actually. Like this thing is all hands on deck. So when I was up packing one night, I I put the episode on to watch it. When Ankh was on the show, he made... A couple really good points and things that I knew in the back of my head, but like hadn't really like processed, like in the frontal lobe. And he was like, you know, this show is a tragedy. We're talking about crack dealers in the 80s in L.A. Like this story doesn't end well. It just doesn't. He was like, You're we're watching a tragedy. It's just a matter of like how it plays out. And I was like, well, when you put it like that. And I was very disturbed that he wouldn't answer my question about whether he survived season four. And I was like, yo, stop playing with me. But I was thinking about the show when I was watching it. I had like really bad anxiety watching this show. And I was like, I'm really way too tied in to these characters. But I was thinking the best case scenario for Franklin Saint is that he gets locked up. And Even in his best case scenario, he ends up locked up for, what, 16 years? The character that Franklin Saint is based on, Freeway Ricky Ross, he got locked up for 20 years and served 17 and I was thinking the other day, too, I was reading something about Rayful Edmonds. That was, I guess, the Franklin Saint of D.C. in the 80s. He's one of D.C.'s best known drug dealers. He's alleged to have been making two million a day at the height of his drug organization. His sentence was recently reduced. He was sentenced in 1989 to life in prison. So he's been in there for, what, 30 31 years. He's 55 now. He's been locked up since he was, what, 25? But that's how he survived the game is he got locked up. If he stayed on the streets, he probably would have been killed while still in his 20s. So I was like, yeah, so best case scenario for our dear Franklin State is jail. Jesus. Somehow, though, I don't think that's going to be Franklin's end. Just some of the choices that the writers have made. In the course of this show, I don't think Franklin survives through the final episode of the show. I think Franklin goes out with a bullet. Just so sad. That's my prediction for the show. Whatever the final season is, I think he's going to die. I know for certain, even without ever talking to a writer for the show, that a lead character is going to die this season. And I think it's going to be Aunt Louie or Uncle Jerome. I thought Jerome's days were numbered Once Franklin's dad came back into the picture. Because he and Jerome served the same function in Franklin's life. And so thusly in the show. And the dad is developing his own storyline this season. And I was like, yo, I really think Ankh is about to die. And I'm very, very upset about it already. But I definitely think there's going to be a major character death. If nothing else, like the show is so violent now. I don't know how far we've skipped ahead. It's only been a couple months. tops. But it's like so dark now. We've got the emergence of the Crips and the Bloods. I don't think they're calling themselves that yet. But in the finale of season three, and Amin talked about this scene as one of his favorites, but it's like when you see Man Boy, he has on blue. And when you see, what's the other guy's name? The crazy dude. But when you see the crazy dude, he and all his friends have on red. Like I caught that when I first watched it and I was like, oh, here we go. And there's a really weird... Not weird, smart, I guess is probably the better word. There's a familial tie between the show version of the leader of the Crips and the leader of the Bloods. Man Boy's sister has a kid by the crazy dude. That's how Franklin, or at least Lee, initially meets the crazy dude. Because Man Boy has the connect. And he and Lee go to crazy dude's house. They're having full out warfare on the streets of their city. They're not just attacking their community, they're literally attacking family. Like, Man Boy is trying to kill his nephew's father, and the crazy dude is trying to kill his baby mama's brother or his child's uncle, because Man Boy is both. Like, that's crazy. And Crazy Dude is just like, I mean, he's crazy as shit. Like, we knew, like, from when he had Dude locked up in the bedroom that he was crazy. But I was like, you're stringing people up crucifixion style in the middle of the hood? Like, we're there, bruh? We're there? Let me get an update on Melly. I won't tell you what's going on with Melly, just in case you haven't watched the show. I don't want to do complete spoilers, but Melly now is almost as disturbing as Melly smoking crack. The stuff she was saying, I was like, girl, they have brainwashed you. But it's setting up to be a good season. mean promised that it was going to be bigger and wilder and crazier. And so far, what I've seen confirms what he said. So I can't wait to get into this season. Also, if you're from FX, can I get screeners? Because I talked about Bigger from BET from last week. And I literally just talked about it because I love the show. Like, I thought it was a fun show. I took a whole day off and it and one of the ways that I spent that day off was like binging bigger. I also reached out to the showrunner and was like, yo, sis, I think you're dope. But I got a note from BET earlier today and they were like, sis, can we send you things? And I was like, yes, please. FX, please make it easier for me to watch your show um, and to talk about it. I don't mind talking about the show because I love the actors and I love the show. But if you can make it easier for me to see it, that would be great because my life's a little crazy right now. Speaking of people who want me to talk about their show, Queen Sugar, (laughs) they go back and forth every season on who they decide to send screeners to, whether they're sending screeners at all. Apparently, I've made the cut this year, so they're sending me screeners, which I was like, thank you, because otherwise, I don't know how I watch the show. I don't have own. I don't have cable. I'm still trying to figure out how to watch Don't Waste Your Pretty, by the way. My friend does the PR for Philo, Philo, P-H-I-L-O. And she was like, "They have TV One, and it's free for seven days. So that's probably how I'm going to end up watching my own film, at least on TV. I've seen I've seen two cuts of it so far. I think what airs will be a slightly different version. At least I hope so, because the one that I the last one I saw, my credits weren't right as per contract. So I hope they get that straightened out. We have people working on it." <laughs> But thank you to whoever it owned decided I should be on the list this year. I, I genuinely appreciate you. I'm not being an asshole because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to watch Queen Sugar. The second episode of the season aired last night. I watched the first one. I don't know where I watched it. Mr. World Premiere. I love my border loans. I was so happy to see them. I genuinely feel like they're family, which is really weird for TV characters. But I really, really, really enjoy them. I was like, oh, i want Uncle Hollywood! It's the small things that bring me joy. I was even happy to see Nova. And I don't really care for Nova because she tries it. Um, but I was actually happy to see her too. Her and her, her new boo, or her old boo that was actually somebody's husband, but is now officially her living boo. She's getting very humbled this season though, which she deserves. She called herself going to a cookout to meet her white boo's family. And that didn't seem to go over very well. And I was like, did you think that it would? She was scared they weren't going to like her because she's black. And I was like, you don't think maybe like the adulterous affair had anything to do with it? May- no, not at all. You don't think that's a factor? that She was at the event and old boy's ex-wife showed up because she's the mother of his kids. They were married for quite some time. People feel like she's family because she is. You got a divorce, but you got kids with people. you still family with them. But white ex-wife let Nova have it. And Nova just looked like, "I you will not speak to me this way. Yeah, she kind of got a right to. Like, she divorced the husband because he was trifling. But you knew he was married. And she knows that you knew he was married. You could get some, too. You could get some, too. You deserved some, too, sis. Some people be like, well, you know, the other woman didn't take vows. Like, but she knew he was married. I ain't saying fight her. But curse her out? You got that coming. Easy. Easy. Just take that out. And I love Charlie's storyline. I think the writers were really, really smart to bring in an antagonist for Charlie that was essentially another Charlie. Because Charlie is very, very intelligent. And she's able to outsmart nearly everyone that she's come in contact with in various ways. But now Charlie has met herself, essentially. once she's, This new woman is amazing like she's like evil charlie you remember the mother the mother mistress from underground i cannot remember her name on the show ernestine don't quote me but she was the mother on underground and she was also having like the the dom sex with her master which i was like this show is weird as fuck but i love it that's charlie's nemesis on Queen Sugar, she's a beautiful woman, like she's like perfection, she's so, so pretty. I'm happy to see her working, but she giving given Charlie a run for her money, and I was like, yes, yeah, Back in my editing days, like I was doing fiction and you know, it's romance novels, but you still have to conform to some you know norms of the story. There has to be a protagonist, there has to be a love interest, there has to be an antagonist, you know, all of that. but one of the things that makes a good hero is a good antagonist. A hero is only as heroic as the adversity that he or she overcomes. So if you really want to make someone heroic, you got to put them up against someone who gives them a fierce fight. And if they can overcome that, then they're genuinely heroic. Like Superman. Leaping over a rock is nothing. Leaping over a mountain is something. Crass analogy, but you understand. I also found myself having a really weird reaction to the COVID storyline in the show. And without giving anything away, like the show, this season tackles the early days of COVID and all of the different reactions, like the people who take it super seriously, the people who are like, eh, it's not that serious. But Aunt Vi has a pie shop and there's a mandate that she needs to close her shop in order to protect herself and her customers. But in the final scene of the second episode, she puts a sign in her window, says closed until April 1st. And I had this weird visceral reaction, like I I teared up, like I, I wanted to cry because it kind of reminded me of our general naivete about COVID a year ago. And it was like, okay, like these major cities are going to shut down for 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 two weeks and then everything will be fine because our government will figure it out and our leaders will take care of us and everything's going to be fine. It's going to be under control. And then here we are a year later with 500,000 people dead from COVID and some places are still like in various forms of lockdown. I mean, like Atlanta's wide open, but. Like here in L.A., like we still can't eat indoors. There are no concerts. There's no clubs. There's no gyms. The malls are still empty. We're all still walking around in masks. There's a vaccine. Like there's hope is on the way, as our new POTUS likes to say. But it ain't here yet. It's not officially here yet. Like, I mean, some people have been double vaccinated, but the vast majority of us, it's not happening until June. July, August, but just seeing Vi put the sign on the door and, you know, oh, we're just going to wait this out for two weeks and it'll be fine. Like, really, it won't. And especially as like a, I mean, she's technically not a restaurant owner. I guess she's a bakery. But I think about like, even just like my block in LA, like I moved to DTLA, which has like, you know, all the cute restaurants and all the things to do. Like, you know, it's it's city-ish of a city that's very suburban, but everything in DTLA is like very condensed, almost like cities on the East Coast. Which is why I moved down here, because living in the suburbs, it was cute. I liked my place. I loved my view. My neighbors were noisy as shit. And just living in the suburbs, it was one thing when I was crashing with my parents. But I was like, to live by choice on my own in the burbs, I was like, ah. I need a, I need a little more oomph. I need to hear a siren and somebody yelling, fuck you, every once in a while. Just to, like, you know, feel at home. Clearly lived in Brooklyn too long. But just on my block, like... And we'll go to the other side of the street because I have like a strip of, of restaurants or what were restaurants and eateries. Like, I'd say of like the eight of them, five are closed. There are two restaurants attached to my building. One of them was closed when I moved in. It never did open. They just took the sign down one day. And another one, they did the best that they could. And then one day I walked by and it was just boarded up. And I was like, oh, is it boarded up because of the protest? Because the board stayed up from... They took them down after the summer protests. Oh, but they went up around the election because they thought people were going to get crazy then. And they stayed up through the inauguration. They took the boards down after. Some places their boards never came down. And that's how you realize like they're closed closed. But watching people deal with the early days of the pandemic and just not knowing what's what is triggering I feel like all of us, and by all, I mean, like, by all of us, I mean, like, the whole damn world, like some PTSD intervention, professional help, something, because we're all scarred by this in some way. Like, how could you not be? You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. I saw the new trailer for Handmaid's Tale today. I love that show. It's coming back in April. Many times throughout this (laughs) Panasonic, (laughs) I have thought about *The Handmaid's Tale. And I specifically think about the episode when June went to DC and she encountered the other handmaid's who had masks over their faces. And I remember seeing that on screen and like gasping because it was just so jarring to see and I was like, "Oh my god, these women are walking around like with masks on. They're being silenced." And then, you know, once the mask came off, you realized they had like their mouths had been bolted shut. But even just before that, just seeing the women with the mask, I was like, "Oh my god, this is horrifying." And then now here we are. And I was it was like, what else is this show foreshadowing? Like, how far into Handmaid's Tale are we actually going? But I love that show. June gets on my last damn nerve. I complain about her every week. Especially because, like, her worst fear come true. This handmaiden situation is, like, what black women lived for, like, centuries in America. And no one ever points that out on the show. That, like, oh, like, we probably should have said something when people thought this was okay to do to black women because they got comfortable with the idea of doing it to them and then they went ahead and decided to do it to white women too. Like, we probably should have intervened. I think of that poem, which I think is about the Holocaust. I could be wrong, but it's like, you know, when they came for them, I'm butchering this, but when they came for them, I said nothing. When they came for them, I said nothing. And then when they came for them, I said nothing. And when they came for me, there was nobody left to say anything. Kind of feel like that's June's story. I just wish once on this show, somebody would point out that just like, hey, they doing it. That's what they did to the black ladies. Well, how did the black women survive? Because, you know, they made it. How can we do what black women do? I just want black women to be given credit for like surviving the crazy because these white women are like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And then June is considered a badass for essentially doing, you know, shit that black women did as a method of survival. I was like, I just want credit. Just credit black people. Just credit black women. That's all I want. That's all I want. I still haven't watched this week's Bachelor. I think I'm just over it. Like, I usually do recaps. And if I wasn't swamped with so much work, I was like, something has to give. Like, I don't get paid for those recaps. So I know they bring joy to others. But, like, I know they bring joy to others. But I'm swamped. So that's always going to be the first thing that gets cut. I think because of all the off-camera drama going on with the show right now with like the racism and you know it's pretty much confirmed that he picked like the white racist chick as his future wife and i was like i don't really want to watch that shit and then there's just all this muck with like the host and you know all that stuff i'm like yeah i'm good i really don't care cuz i said from the beginning like i was like oh i'm going to do video recaps of the show because it's a black guy but then i saw the black guy and he was like i feel so much pressure because black people want me to do this and white people want me to do that. And then I'm both. I'm a panda. And I was like, Negro, you're just going to pick a white woman. Just go on and say that. And then he did an interview where he was like, you know, I'm upset that people just assume I'm going to pick a white woman. And I was like, oh, so there's hope for a black girl. I was like, well, let me tune in. And then I got sucked into the show. And then just all the drama. I'm just like so over it. I was like, I just want to watch like, you know, a messy TV show. I don't want it to be messy like in actual life which all TV shows are, but I was like, but I don't want it to spill out into the public. That ruins the experience for me. I will give Matt credit, though, like for all the drama that's been going on with the show. He started off very much trying to toe the line and was like, well, let's hear both sides because we don't have all the facts and these allegations can really ruin people's reputation. So let's see where it goes. And then after the Chris thing, he came out and was like, I stand with Rachel Lindsay, who was the black bachelorette who was interviewing Chris Harrison to the interview that got him put on punishment from the bachelor. So Matt did come out and make a statement on Instagram because that's where all great statements are made these days. Matt says, quote, the reality is, is that I'm learning about these situations in real time and it has been devastating and heartbreaking to put it bluntly. Chris's failure to receive and understand the emotional labor that my friend Rachel Lindsay was taking on by graciously and patiently explaining the racist history of the Antebellum South, a painful history that every American should understand intimately, was troubling and painful to watch. As Black people and allies immediately knew and understood, it was a clear reflection of a much larger issue that the Bachelor franchise has fallen short on addressing adequately for years. So good for him for speaking out, I guess... Like I said, it's all but confirmed that like he picked the white chick. It's like 90% confirmed. It's everything but the pictures. But it's like, you know, you had all these options for women in the house. Many of them melanated. You decided to discard all these other women and go for the white girl who also happens to be racist. Like that makes you look crazy. I, I kind of made peace with him choosing a white girl because his mom is white. So I really wasn't expecting anything else. There were some white women in the house that I thought were cute and had good energy that I I wouldn't have been mad at. But I was like, you went for the white chick that goes to like old style plantation parties. And her parents are definitely Trumpers. She's like some MAGA content online. But I was like, this is the white woman you chose? There's a lot of think pieces to be written about that. Hmm. I don't know. I'm just not interested in it. I think if I had downtime, I might try to give it a watch, but it's Nothing that I can prioritize. I also got caught up on This Is Us because I love This Is Us. The last episode about like how they handle their newborns, meh. Nah. I really only care for this show when it focuses on the Black Pearsons. It is what it is. The Kate storyline just doesn't do it for me. Kevin is far more tolerable than he used to be. I'm really not that big a fan of Madison. Maybe the babies will change that. I don't know. Doubtful. I guess we need to talk about some real-life ratchet shit this week. I've only been marginally following the news for the last few days. This latest Don't Waste Your Pretty drop has literally consumed my life. Good problems, because I could drop merchandise that nobody bought, and that would be a big problem. Thankful to do it, but I did this surprise drop on Tuesday night. Like, I just put a ton of sweatshirts on the site and was like, you know, have at it. May the odds be forever in your favor. And so... And as of Friday morning, there's, there's stuff left. Most of the smaller sizes are gone. If you're a large to a 4X, there are still sizes on the site. But literally, like press pause and go to the site now to get your merch. Because I don't know what happens after Sunday. And I have no plans for a third drop. I didn't have plans for a second one. But like a lot of people asked about the shirt. So I was like, well, let me figure it out probably not doing a third drop and I'm dead serious because like after this I'm going on vacation. I don't know where I'm going. I may just lay in this house and stand out on my balcony to get sun, but like I'm not thinking about work. I'm not doing any work. I'm just going to like lay and sleep. I <laughs> will leave that other part out and grub hub my life. I'm not cooking. I'm I'm not I just I just need like a breather from life. That said, the little bit of news that I did catch my foes are going crazy. Remember that QAnon chick, the Marjorie Taylor Greene? She was elected to Congress from someplace like an hour outside Atlanta. This woman batshit crazy. And I know that's the, I know I keep using that term to refer to her, but it's the most accurate one that I can think of. What does she do? How do I explain this? Another Congresswoman, Marie Newman. I'm looking at NBC right now. Congressman Marie Newman has a transgender child. She works in the office across the hall from Marjorie Taylor Greene's office. Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to block the Equality Act, which supports LBG, which supports LGBTQ rights. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she believes prohibiting discrimination against trans Americans is disgusting, immoral and evil. So prohibiting discrimination is disgusting, immoral, and evil. I had to read that like three times. I was like, I'm sorry, what? She doesn't want to prohibit discrimination? Stopping the discrimination is evil. Like the discrimination is fine, but stopping it is disgusting, evil, and immoral. So Representative Newman, who has a transgender child, she placed a transgender flag outside of her office so that every time Marjorie Taylor Greene came out, she would see the transgender flag. Greene responded by tweeting a video of herself where she's putting up a large sign across from Marie Newman's office that reads, There are two genders, male and female. Trust the science. I said this before. Congress needs HR. They, they for real need like an HR office where they can go to with complaint. The stuff that they're doing to each other, like setting each other up to get killed, stuff like that. They need an HR intervention bad. There's another representative, Corey Bush. Corey Bush asked to have her offices transferred away from Marjorie Taylor Green, Basically because she was like, that bitch is crazy. She didn't say it like that, but that's what she meant. And she was like, uh, I got to get away from her. So she moved offices. This woman is a terror amongst Congress. If I pulled this shit at my job, I would be fired. But you're a member of Congress doing this shit? Like literally, if I got on the internet tomorrow and said, prohibiting discrimination against trans Americans is disgusting, immoral, and evil, every single one of my contracts would be pulled. My little panteen check, bye. My little TV1 situation, bye. They don't know me no more. All the networks and stuff, all the ads on this podcast, they'd be like, ooh, ooh, LGBTQ discrimination? Ooh, we can't do that. We won't have that. Mm -mm." But this woman's a member of Congress, and she goes and does that shit. Like, I do not understand. Governor Cuomo is back in the news. We've talked about him before. He's dealing with the fallout from this nursing home scandal and apparently not dealing with it well. New York State Assemblyman Ron Kim He's accused Governor Cuomo of threatening him. He says Cuomo told him he would destroy him in retaliation for Kim criticizing Cuomo's handling of COVID-19 in nursing homes. And meanwhile, because of that nursing home scandal, the FBI and federal prosecutors in Brooklyn have reportedly opened an investigation into the Cuomo administration's handling of nursing home deaths during the pandemic. Cuomo has acknowledged that his decision to withhold the data was a mistake. He said it created a quote, void in accurate information about the toll of the virus. Created a void in accurate information. Nigga, you lied. Next time somebody be like, Demetri, you lied. I'm be like, no. I created a void in accurate information. This is up there with alternative facts. I loved it. Still love Chris, but I loved me some Governor Cuomo. But sir, you trying it right now? You are trying it. You had potential POTUS status, and this isn't this isn't helping the bid, sir. Cuomo has refused to apologize. He insists that neither he or his administration did anything unethical or illegal. This is one of those times I like to go back to, like Dave Chappelle, when he was talking about his situation with Netflix and Comedy Central. And I think HBO Max, when they were running his content and he wasn't receiving a check or even a heads up that the content was coming out. And he was like, yes, there's a contract in place. And yes, I signed it. And he was like, because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And so in the case of you know, Cuomo here, when he says, well, it wasn't unethical or it wasn't illegal, but was what you did the right thing to do? I think that counts. I do think that counts. Governor Cuomo is also dealing with another scandal. He's denied allegations from a former aide who's accused him of sexual harassment, including an unwanted kiss, Lindsay Boylan. She alleges that in 2018, Cuomo kissed her on the lips following a one-on-one briefing in his New York City office. She wrote an article for Medium, a lengthy essay with many receipts, many receipts, screenshots, of conversations that she had at the time about things that were improper and Governor Cuomo's behavior. Let's read from Medium what Lindsey Boylan has to say. This came out yesterday, Thursday. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's really long. She says at one point, the governor suggested to her, quote, let's play strip poker. She says they were flying home from an October 2000 event in Western New York. She alleges, quote Governor Andrew Cuomo has created a culture within his administration where sexual harassment and bullying is so pervasive that it is not only condoned but expected. So she additionally started talking about this in a series of tweets back in December. And she said the reason that she spoke out is because another former Cuomo staffer had confi- had confided in her that she too had been the subject of the governor's workplace harassment. And seeing Cuomo's name floated as a potential U.S. attorney general did not sit well with her. She said when she joined state government in 2015 as a vice president at Empire State Development, that she was warned from a friend, quote, be careful around the governor. She met him for the first time at the top of 2016. And she said she was surprised by how much attention he paid to her. She says her boss pointed out to her that the governor had a crush on her. She said the governor had started calling her Lisa in front of colleagues. Lisa was the name of his rumored former girlfriend. People at the office said that this woman looked just like the girlfriend. So she was very uncomfortable. She said it was degrading that the governor was calling her by his alleged ex-girlfriend's name. She said she would complain to friends that the governor would go out of his way to touch her on her lower back, arms, and legs. She told her mother what was happening. Her mother texted her, he is a sexist pig and you should avoid being alone with him. She provides the screenshots of the text from her mother. She also has screenshots of the exchange about being called Lisa in the office. She said the governor's behavior made her nervous, but she didn't fear him. Until December 2016, she'd gone to a work event to celebrate the holidays. The governor spotted her in the room, and as he began to approach her, she moved away. She said just after that, she got a phone call from an unlisted number. It was the governor's body person. He asked her to go to the Capitol because the governor wanted to see her. She agreed to see him. She said she was escorted into the governor's office. This is his Albany office. And she said the governor entered a room from another door. We were alone. And she says at one point, he pulled out a box of cigars and smirked. He said that President Clinton had given those cigars to him when he served as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And she recognized that it was a two-decade-old reference to President Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. If you recall... you're a certain age, I'm sure you do. Clinton used the cigars in place of himself when pleasuring Monica Lewinsky. She says the governor must have sensed her fear because he finally let her out of the office. She says in 2018, she was promoted to deputy secretary for economic development. She said she initially turned the job down. Not because she didn't want the responsibility, because she doesn't, but because she didn't want to be near the governor. She said she finally accepted the position at the governor's insistence, with one requirement: she would keep her old agency office and remain on a separate floor from him and his inner circle. She does point out that the governor's quote unquote pervasive harassment extended just beyond me. He made unflattering comments about the weight of female colleagues. He ridiculed them about their romantic relationships and significant others. Oh, and this is when she details this kiss. She said, I tried to excuse his behavior. I told myself it's only words. But then she had this one-on-one briefing with the governor to update him on some work stuff. She says they were in the New York City office this time. And she says that she got up to leave and walked toward a door. Quote, he stepped in front of me and kissed me on the lips. I was in shock, but I kept walking. She says after that incident, she would start going to work and she'd feel nauseous every day. And then finally, in September of 2018, she sent a mass email informing staff members of her resignation. And she says after the tweets about the governor, two other women reached out to her with their own experience. One described how she lived in constant fear, scared of what would happen if she rejected the governor's advances. The other says she was instructed by the governor to warn staff members who upset him that their jobs could be at risk. This is ungood. This is very ungood. And the receipts. The conversations with her mother, the complaints about being called another woman's name. She doesn't have any receipts for the kiss, but I don't know that she needs them. For the obvious reason I say it doesn't look good, because, I mean, harassing women at work is horrible and terrible and trifling. I have been sexually harassed at a job before It is not a good feeling. How the mighty fall so quickly, my God. A year ago, we were hailing this man for potential POTUS status. And now here we are. Ah, well. I hope ma'am is okay. I'm glad she spoke out. If these accusations are true, which the emails, um, these accusations are true. He doesn't need to be in office anymore. Like, sexual harassment is a very serious thing. Between this and the nursing home scandal? Like, you harassing women at work and killing grandma? Choose a scandal, sir. Choose a scandal. Don't do all the scandals. Choose one. Today's episode is brought to you
0: by Angie. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A N G I.com.
1: Last but not least, I want to talk about Andre Leon Talley once again. We talked about him either Tuesday or last week. I can't remember which one. It's all running together now. But he is back in the news. The New York Times did an expose on his housing woes. They were trying to figure out how a man of Andre Leon Talley's professional stature, his great influence ended up in this situation where he's 72 and about to be evicted by the former CEO of Manolo Blahnik. It's an ugly story. And it's it's about Tali, but it's also about like the nature of fashion. Let me just actually just read what the New York Times says. In describing ALT's situation, the Times summarizes, in some ways the suits are simply the latest cautionary tale about the problems of mixing work and friendship. But more broadly, the problem with the house throws light on a pattern of behavior long endemic in the fashion world in which gifts, favors and influence were the currency of exchange. Often it was hard to tell what was business and what was personal. The Times talks about basically all the free shit that editors get. So like a free bag here and there or a free trip to a show in a faraway country with first class ticket and hotel in exchange for a review. But the Times says that Mr. Tally's situation shows that such arrangements, always unspoken, help carve out a wider slippery slope. And it's easy to lose your footing and slide all the way to the bottom. They talk about how Andre Leon Tally and the former CEO of Manolo Blondick, Mr. Malcolmus, how they were good friends at one point and how in his memoir, ALT mentions Malcolmus. On multiple occasions. They had a long-term friendship. Malcolmus had looked out for him on many, many occasions. So yes, shoes, and yes, this house, but at one point also a car. ALT's credit was really bad. He's had three bankruptcies. So they'd had previous arrangements where Andre had given them money so that they could be the front for him to get what he wanted because his credit was not so good. They talk a lot about the perks of working in magazine world. I work for the wrong magazine. I did not get these perks. There were perks to working at Essence, but it was not this. He says at Condé Nast, where Mr. Talley began working in 1988, salaries were often supplemented by clothing allowances, car services, and deep expense accounts. Mr. Talley writes in his memoir that when he wanted to buy a home for his grandmother in Durham, North Carolina. Anna Wintour, his then-boss, asked the Condé Nast chief executive to give Andre an interest-free loan. When ALT gained a health-threatening amount of weight, Ms. Wintour arranged for Vogue to pay for a three-month visit to Duke Diet and Fitness Center. ALT went back two more times, each time thanks to Condé Nast. Essence would never. The Times says that against this backdrop, the idea that a friend— albeit one whose business was visibly intertwined with Mr. Tally's business, would offer to step in and help him buy a house when he got into trouble probably didn't seem outlandish, especially because Mr. Malcolmus had acted as his proxy before. Um, there are a few more details in this Times piece that were not in the other. So apparently at one point, Malcolmus and ALT had a contract and that contract expired in 2014. But ALT continued to live in the house. And previously, Malcolmus had asked that he move and he refused. And so it comes down to this lawsuit. I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I would guess that as there is no paper trail, I would guess that as they had a contract that is now expired and has been such, and Malcolmis actually has the title to the house. That this is probably going to be decided in Malcolmis's favor. That said, New York has really interesting rental laws. Like, if you live somewhere for more than 30 days, and there was a really good article recently about like the problem with like squatters' rights in New York. God, where did I read that? It was about this nightmare of a woman who moved in with these people with her daughter and her cat, and then just refused to move out. And because she was there for 30 days, there was really nothing that the family could do. And she was like hell on earth. But I wonder if that would play into Tally's situation because technically he was a renter. So if Tally is considered a renter, then would his squatter's rights apply? I don't know. This is an interesting case. I know that much. But I'll say about the same thing that I said last week. It's very sad to hear about someone in this situation, especially a 72-year-old man. You're Andre Leon Talley. You have a, a personality and a brand that is larger than life. And he was like the highest ranking black person, dare I say, male or female in fashion. He has since fallen out with Anna Wintour. I don't know if I want to say fallen from grace, but he is no longer in the inner circle I think this is probably part of the the fallout from his separating ties or dragging in his book Anna Wintour. He dragged that woman, so certainly there must so there's definitely a rift between them, and maybe folks feel the need to choose one loyalty over the other. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Anna Wintour was masterminding this whole thing. It's kind of really sad to see this black man enter into these white circles where for so long he pretended that he was embraced and accepted. And then for this memoir, he spills all this tea about, you know, subtle things or even blatant things that happened to him. But he remained in this circle because he felt accepted. And all along, like, they liked the job, they liked the titles, but did they really like him? Because now that he's persona non grata with Anna Wintour... All these people that he considered friends, the friends that, you know, he was living in their home. Anna he traveled the world with her, even though she treated him like shit in a lot of those places. But he considered these people friends. And now that he does not have the professional stature that he once did, he's finding out who is really a friend and who is not. My my friend, genuine friend, we used to work at Essence together years and years ago, Zandaleigh Black. she wrote a piece on... Andre Leon Talley, and I'd like to read it to you. She's a work in fashion at Essence, and I'm not doing credit to her title. Works in fashion is is not befitting of her. She's an award-winning journalist and professor. In 2014, she was named a Fashion Innovator of the Year by Revlon and Refinery29. In 2013, she was named Journalist of the Year by Africa Fashion International and Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week Africa. In 2012, she was named as a semifinalist for the Neiman Journalism Fellowship, the Neiman Journalism Fellowship at Harvard University. In 2010, she was named on Ebony Magazine's inaugural power list. She has a Masters of Arts in Fashion with a concentration in journalism from Central State Martins College of Art and Design in London. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Broadcast Journalism from the Newhouse School of Public Communications and a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, both at Syracuse University. Told you she was dope! I like to celebrate my people when I can, especially when they say things like this. I'm going to read it to you. Not the whole thing, but most of it. Because went off. Quiet as it's kept, quote Quiet as it's kept some of us have had the privilege of being broke and evicted in peace and privacy because our brown-nosing didn't get us a, because our brown-nosing didn't get us a big enough seat at the table to be targeted by major press outlets but anyway I digress I don't know this man but sorry to this man so very sorry to this man he may have held his seat at the table with an iron grip and allegedly never helped a quote brother or sister out but still At 72, his existence in the space and persistence in that existence means tally crawled so career tokens like me could walk. He shucked so overdressed Southern fashionistas in the industry could jive. He put on airs so all social climbers from all tribes could fly. Nah, he likely never did it for us. But darling, as muse, editor, and footstool to all the great white ladies from Grace Mirabella to Diane Vreeland to his coldest winter ever, this man did it first and best enough to emerge as the global archetype of fashion and did so being too fat, too black, too gauche. I hear the laughter at his demise, but I see no roses for his rise. Gag. Because today's overblown, overdressed, over easy social media fashionistas have Andre Leon Talley to thank for their chunky styling and thin personas. These fashion royals have no bloodline, but Talley is the father A bad father, yes. A neglectful father, yes. A father who would rather chase white women than tend to his black, brown, and mixed babies, yes. But how many of us have daddies like that in real life? Maybe it's just my trauma, but I've grown a soft spot for deadbeats with rich delusions and poor priorities. So in between our private chuckles and kikis on Leon's latest humiliation, there have been so many. It would be so human and humane to take a second to have a little respect. Respect for an elder, respect for revenge, respect for failure, respect for loneliness, respect for friendlessness, respect for lovelessness, respect for shallowness, respect for pain, respect for imperfect bodies, respect for imperfect paths. respect for the table, respect for the seat, respect for hypocrites. Respectfully, happy Fashion Week, happy Black History Month. Sis, gnat. Xanderlay, motherfucking blay. So that is it. For this week's episode of Ratchet and Respectable, thank you for tuning in. And please tune in to TV One. You knew it was coming. Please tune in to TV One this Sunday, February 28th, 8, 7 Central, TV One. If you'd like merch as a little souvenir for the film, please go to DemetriaLLucas.com or com or DemetriaLucas.com, either or, same site. But if you'd like to get merch, it is there. The mugs the signed copies of the second edition of the book. And then also what we have left of the hoodies, especially from the large to four X sizes. So if you got titties, we got a shirt that can fit over them comfortably. You got to stuff them in there. That's not comfortable. I know. Thank you as always for listening. And we'll talk again Tuesday next week, next month. Yeah. It's all going by so fast. Okay. That's everything. Bye.